2: W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Rice. Thank you for listening. Today, dancers and musicians as storytellers. The artist Corey Johnson is best known as OK Cello. He combines live sound looping with classical cello music, immersing audiences in vivid stories as well as songs. We'll listen back to an in-studio performance with OK Cello ahead of his concert next week. First, deadly hurricanes share the news with reports elsewhere of devastating wildfires. The impact of climate change is something we face daily. The Artists Climate Collective is a nonprofit group uniting artists across North America in the fight against climate change. The collective produced Art to Action, a film that includes a piece from Atlanta based choreographer Darian Kane and featuring dancers from all across the city, including artists from the Atlanta Ballet, Terminus Modern Ballet Theater, and Immerse ATL. Darian Kane joins us now with Atlanta Ballet colleague and choreographer Keaton Lear. Co-founder of the Artists' Climate Collective, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois.
3: Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. Keaton,
2: what made you and your colleagues decide to create the ACC, as you're calling it, the Artists' Climate Collective?
1: Well, we were initially inspired to create ACC based on our growing concern for the climate crisis. And I think... We all see my other two co-founders and I see that the arts have such a unique power to changing perspective on the way people think about general issues. And so we thought the best way we could kind of promote change and provoke awareness was to use our strengths, which you know is art and creation of dance and bringing artists together to um, push the movement and change perspectives of people so, That's how the collective was initially formed. Yeah, we decided that that was one of our biggest strengths, so we wanted to use our tools as best we could to push the movement and keep fighting to create change.
2: This new film project features six original pieces commissioned by the ACC. Can you give us a brief description of the films?
1: Yes, you are correct. There are six pieces that are featured in our film project, Each piece comes from its own location spanning throughout North America, one of them being its home base in Atlanta. All of the pieces have a different take on the theme of environmental activism or some sort of issue to promote its creation, but they all have the same underlying theme of environmentalism in mind. Not only are we including creations with just dance involved, but we have a lot of musical compositions that are new for this project, as well as live musicians included in pieces. And yes, there are premieres. I think five of the six pieces are all brand new pieces, and one was a a revival of an old piece that wanted to be created for film, so I guess technically also a new piece.
2: How many companies are represented
1: So we have dancers from American Ballet Theater, Atlanta Ballet, Terminus Modern Ballet Theater, San Francisco Ballet, Ballet Met in Columbus, Ohio, as well as the um, Royal Winnipeg Ballet Aspirant Program dancers.
2: (laughs) And that's where you were trained, in Winnipeg?
1: Yes, yes. I have deep roots in Winnipeg. So yeah, it was really lovely reconnecting with them to create their project there.
2: Yeah, that's an illustrious company. Darian, what is the underlying theme of your new piece, All Eyes Forward?
3: Oh, gosh. I feel like the theme of the piece had to evolve as the creation process took us in several different directions. It originally started out as um, the idea of racing to claim this abandoned stadium that we were going to set the piece in and day of filming our location fell through and we ended up finding this other really, really beautiful location that was that was quite magical. And um, the more we got into the piece and had to deal with all of the nuances of the hectic day of filming, I kind of arrived at this place of trying to convey the contrast between chaos and order and that struggle that exists not only in our own personal lives but between nature and industrialism and my idea was if if I could have the dancers dressed accordingly to almost personify the concept of nature and the concept of industrialism what would it look like if they were able to engage in a dialogue through movement to Assess um, a specific piece of land that they were on at the time and to negotiate who had the right to claim it.
2: One of the movements reminded me of an old fashioned locomotive. Am I overthinking it or or was that a train, uh, the early industrial pollution of the land?
3: That's an interesting thought. I'm happy to hear that. I think. Well, it was not um, specifically like the aim. If if you got something like that from what I've made, that's that's very nice, and <laughs> I love that. It, it means that what I was trying to convey to to some extent was evident to a viewer with very little information, which is quite wonderful.
2: Yeah, that movement was just wonderful. I guess it could also apply to a machine to. Uh, Cogs or Mm -hmm. wheels turning as well.
3: Yes, yeah. That was kind of the idea as well.
2: We spoke in the winter. You recently added choreography to your career as a dancer. How did it feel to create a piece on such a hot-button issue for the ACC?
3: It was definitely an honor specifically because choreographing is a totally new medium for me. It feels like I still am trying to figure out what I'm even trying to do, but um, I was very honored and grateful when Kian asked to let me be a part of his world, um, which was very sweet. I, I think it's, it's hard to, to take on a difficult concept. I think one of the things that we can all agree on is there, there's a lot of, adopted guilt when we look at environmental change and issues with climate. And I think because of that, people tend to kind of turn a blind eye to it. And you know, that's exactly the opposite of what we want. So I, I think the beautiful thing about art is it it allows you to express things about topics we're already aware of, but in a way that makes it like a lot more digestible and less abrasive for someone who's not as particularly as inclined and so to to have a chance to attempt to do that was a really big honor it was very wonderful to take part in that
2: and in addition to choreographing this dance you collaborated with the videographer noah suna and composer gabriel gaffney smith performing in front of a video camera is different from performing on stage in front of an audience. How did you three work together to showcase this dance as you had envisioned it, Darian?
3: I was very lucky to kind of have my pick from a couple different compositions from Gabe, who is actually a former coworker of mine nice to have that connection as well. So he was um, very gracious with his music and I, I kind of got to hear several different options and pick one and be like, that's the one I want. And then I got to use it, which is super exciting. Noah didn't come in till the end of the process and he's very talented. He, he kind of ended up showing up day of filming and just letting me pull him every which direction and explain things in about (laughs) 30 seconds and be like okay that's what we're gonna do and he would go okay and then we'd be going one direction I'd kind of give him a tug on his shirt and he'd go the other way and so he very much just listened followed and improvised and then led all of the editing that was really where the magic happened and I got to see him take charge. And I just sat back and kind of handled the creative dancer critique with editing. So that was also a very interesting experience to go behind the lens and see all the work put in on the back end of making a film.
2: Oh, I can imagine. The ticket sales collected from this project, Art to Action, will be donated directly to the three organizations that the ACC supports. Keaton, what are those organizations?
1: Yes, so the first of those organizations would be the Sunrise Movement. The Sunrise Movement is a movement of young people working to push change and intersect it with policy intervention. They lead a lot of protests and they're specifically pushing the Green New Deal when it comes to politics. But they are also doing a lot of on the ground work, so we're very proud to be, you know, donating directly to them. The second organization that we support is called Grid Alternatives. They are the nation's largest nonprofit installer of clean energy technologies, and they um, develop and implement renewable energy projects that serve disadvantaged communities environmentally and economically as well. So. We're also very excited to be supporting them. They're based in California. And then the last organization that we support is called the Coalition for Rainforest Nations. Their basic goal is just to stop deforestation. And they kind of observe rainforest nations from around the globe and uh, kind of patrol and make sure that they are fulfilling their promise to bring emissions uh, reductions from the planet's rainforest. It's almost like they police certain nations on... um, what they can do when it comes to deforestation. So they're doing a lot of great work there.
2: <laughs> I read that you live on the Muscogee Nation's land.
1: Yes, in Atlanta, that is the um, land that we reside on, if you live in uh, downtown Atlanta.
2: Why was it important for the company to bring awareness to Indigenous people and sacred lands?
1: Well, at ACC, we're supportive of the Land Back movement. We just want to especially be respectful of that and show that we are aware. And so we also think it's important to state each of our home bases uh, where we reside in honor to just show that we are aware of um, that movement and support it.
2: What actions would you like audiences to take after seeing these films you've created about Climate change.
1: I think we just want to make people feel something different or new after watching these films and um, make them feel like they they can do more. We want them to leave the experience feeling hopeful, not more guilty or more hopeless, hopeful about the future and hopeful that people can, you know, make changes to, you know, improve the situation and... Um, I think something that's one of the easiest things to do is just talk about it, spread word, whether it's within your own community, your own small circle, or whether that's speaking to your government representative about how you think things should change. We just want people to start taking action, whatever that might mean to them.
2: Keaton Lear, co-founder of Artist Climate Collective and Atlanta-based choreographer Darian Kane, both members of Atlanta Ballet, the art-to-action six original films can be streamed online through the end of September. More information will be on our website, wabe.org citylights. In a moment, we'll hear from the acclaimed chef Todd Richards about his cookbook, Soul this is w a b e at This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. Inspired by his cookbook, Soul, a chef's culinary evolution in 150 recipes, Todd Richards opened a food stall at Crog Street Market in February. The new restaurant replaces his previous Richard's Southern Fried, the menu at Soul features a lineup of soul food dishes like the fried chicken sandwich or catfish and waffles. Let's listen back to my conversation with Todd Richards after the release of his cookbook in 2018. Your cookbook Soul is as much about cultural justice as it is about the food itself. But above all, it is a joyous celebration of good food. What role did your parents and your grandmother play in your appreciation of food and cooking?
4: It's such an interesting uh, way of approaching food. Looking at it through the lens of my parents and, and my grandparents, where every single birthday holiday was always at our house. And it was a rewarding time to see... Family come together and to see everything surrounded by delicious food. Mm-hmm. My grandmother's um, cooking evolved a lot because we used to watch every single cooking show on the weekends. Oh. I mean, Yang Can Cook, Julia Childs, you know, Galloping Gourmet, the list goes on and on. And I saw how she would pull different aspects of other cuisines into soul food. And just like in the book, we talked about traditional collard greens and then we go into saute young collard greens. That was the same exploration that my grandmother had as a kid. And it was so fun to see that we can just add other people's twists and touch to common things that we had all the time.
2: Making it quintessentially American and global at the same time.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that's a very funny anecdote you include about taking communion. Um, this going back to your very young impressions of of food. Um, you couldn't figure out why such a bland cracker could be sacred
4: yeah you know i just didn't understand that that if if we were to be uh, celebrating uh the life of 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 god that how can food be this bland <laughs> in that celebration that would be sacrilegious uh at, at our house we had you know people would bring dishes to our house all the time and only people who brought delicious food were invited Back, so oh. I did not understand that, that that concept.
2: So you screened for that, of course. You were not Catholic; you attended Catholic school.
4: Yes, yeah, so, you know, our family we did not really subscribe to one religion. We believe all religions are right, and people have the right to celebrate it, just like all food is equally supposed to be delicious.
2: Well, in the foreword to the book by Sean Brock, as well as in your introduction. Each of you defines soul food. Please tell us about the various meanings.
4: The various meanings of soul food uh, gets distilled down to the most important theme that it's a celebration of family celebration of culture, and it's required to be delicious. Those are the three foundations of of soul food as we both interpret it in our different upbringings. Where Sean is from you know, a uh, rural part of Tennessee, I'm from the south side of Chicago, that we both can come to the same understanding that it has to be implored with love, uh, dignity, and respect for ingredients is the basis of soul food being African American understanding that that term only started in 1950s if we only explore that that time period of soul food, that means that all our contributions before uh, 1950s and 60s haven't been uh, categorically uh, accounted for. And then our explorations after that term uh, or that time period means that we have not progressed in the future of food, which is a huge misnomer. And that's the reason why I'm glad to see our two different interpretations of soul food in the book.
2: Essentially saying that it's what is at your essence your soul it's not soul with the reference to a particular type of music or a particular group of people it it is it transcends that
4: it does it's it's true fellowship Uh, and I, I believe I was quoted saying that that soul food in general is a gateway food and it's a gateway into exploration of people and it gives you the fellowship to come together and really understand each other's culture
2: is there a difference between southern food and soul food?
4: I believe there is a distinct difference in there in the way spices are used. And understanding that from the Africas with the cayenne peppers and the scotch bonnet peppers you get in the Caribbean and cumin's and chili powders, that the spices are could be categorically different in their uses. However, the cooking techniques might be the same.
2: Okay. It sounds like we're getting to the core of more interestingly spiced food <laughs> is with the soul tradition and the the experience of non-European. I,
4: I, I would definitely say that. We have to also understand that in order to make chitlins taste good, <laughs> you got to have some spice inside of that, <laughs> you know, to, to, to do so. So it's not only a requirement of it being delicious, but also it was also painstakingly understanding the history of our of our culture that we had to do things like that in order to make food taste taste palatable.
2: Indeed, to make the best of of what was available to people on a very limited income.
4: Still, still to this day, and and the funny part about it right now is that the spices are actually increasing in price and, and affecting you know a traditional way of cooking.
2: Yeah, that there's a certain irony there, and it also made me think about Alsha Gomez, and in her book my two Souths, she makes the point that ethnic, in quotation marks, ethnic food, um, the notion that it costs less is really insulting. That um, as if the food itself or its creators are of lesser value. I mean, why are European cuisines, French or Italian, why should those, you know, come under the heading of pricey and fancy, but 12 hours, 16 hours into <laughs> cooking collards, why is why is that not every bit as important?
4: I believe most chefs in that value system understand that. When David Chain talks about ramen being the same uh, in the same stratosphere as halt cuisine, the same is for soul food. When you have to think about that, collard greens take that long to cook. Uh, you know, again, making chitlins something that people will consider a throwaway, a, a delicious part of the meal, and not only that just erasing the stereotypes that come with things, such as watermelon. Watermelon is a delicious food. I I (laughs) love
2: that introduction you have to the uh, chapter on melons. It's so informative. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about that? And and also why, early in your career, you thought about shying away from it.
4: Well, watermelon has a a stereotypical um, uh, province in the Americas. It's part of our... The fabric of of our country, and in, most people don't want to admit that our fabric of our country is both good and bad. We, we we sow a lot of lot of bad seeds here, and just seeing those caricatures of of watermelon with the sambos and not being proud of of how delicious something was that really saved a lot of lives in in, in slavery, that the image of it was about being poor or being uneducated or or, or being aloof and, and not. Uh, part of the fabric of society. And when I started working in commercial kitchens, I shied away from it because the shame that it brought with it. One of my first jobs, I was asked uh, when I was applying for it uh, by a chef. He asked me, what well, was I coming in here to cook? Uh, collard greens, fried chicken and soul food. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to pay for that. That was in part of the interview process.
2: What year was that?
4: This was 1993. Oh, that is very recent. <clears throat> so, it, so you have to understand that when you're trying to to educate yourself in culinary kitchens and that is the first you know part of the interview process that entire repertoire of dishes that i known since i was a kid were always pushed to the back burner
2: but in fact you write that um Watermelon is associated with emancipation.
4: It is. If you look at other cultures, including our own culture here in in America, it is emancipation food. I mean, it is a freeing food for for me, and it's the most versatile food, and really on a hot day in the 4th of July, I mean, what else do you want to reach for? You know, but a nice slice of watermelon. And, and you can utilize the rind for pickling and, and have whole exploration of many dishes. And in the book, we did a, a cooler or a lemonade with, with the watermelon. It is a very versatile food. And it gave me more insight to being proud of my heritage and my culture and those caricatures I just put to the wayside.
2: Good, because I was just fascinated to learn about the importance of melons in Africa for hydration and making use of the entire fruit even for shoes.
4: Yes, we even found them in use for shoes. The, the melons, being the the hide, being dried and being soles for shoes. And and in, in this world, to think about something could be that versatile, yeah. that affects that many people, uh, when you see those caricatures, you're like, you know, it's it's just the oddest thing in the world to me that that our country would do that to people.
2: I mean, music is important in this book. As well, because you not only talk about pairing foods, you know, main courses and side dishes or drinks with different dishes, you have suggested musical listening.
4: I got that from my parents. Again, in that celebration format, I mean, I mean we probably wore out more needles on records, you know, in, in, in a year. And it was great. It was part of the ento- entitled, um, you know, entire hospitality experience to have music going. And, and different floors had different music. The backyard always had a whole different soundtrack. So you can walk through our entire house and have this whole different experience. In the basement uh, where the kids w- w- hang out, it was a little bit less raunchy than it was <laughs> maybe out back you know, if blues were playing or Ooh. coming from the neighbors next door. To have a soundtrack in a book, I wanted people to have the entire experience of Soul and not just see it through my lens and not just have an incomplete experience.
2: Well, it, it's a wonderful touch. And it also complements the way you present recipes because you have you have collards, to start, and then after you give, you know, the basically traditional way your take on cooking them, you begin with the improvisations and the riffs with the pickled stems, mm-hmm. and then inside the egg and toast sandwich. And um, it made me wonder were you ever a jazz musician?
4: You know, chefs are nothing but musicians that never made it. (laughs) (laughs) Typically, if you look at uh, most of us, we all have a music uh, gene inside of us. I I believe improv came out of cooking with my dad and his frugality of not wanting to throw things away. And pickled collard green stems is a perfect example Mm. of that. And then the exploration of my mom and her cooking and her food that she did not ever want to be limited to items that could be on our kitchen table. And when you have a dish like collard green ramen from that love of Chinese Mm -hmm. food on 87th and Stony (laughs) Island and my dad's frugality of not throwing anything away, that having Chinese food there with this noodle dish with broth and a little bit of ham or pork belly and scallion and egg and my dad reheating collard greens, that in one bowl is a dish I had when I was five, six years old. It's a dish I never forgot because that vinegar that went with the greens and the spice and the pork belly and the broth, that broth was just there just to drink. It's perfect fusion. I mean, that is what you can do when you explore dishes you start with the uh, tradition pick up things along the way and then you have a whole uh, complete repertoire of dishes that you never had before
2: and when you are explored
4: to other cultures I believe that soul food is the most uh American food there is because along the way it has uh, grabbed other cultures inside of it but it still distinctly has this bite and sound and feel of its origins. Mm,
2: Much like American music. Um, Let's let's go back to collards. The book is organized not by uh, courses but by ingredients. Why did collards get The pride of place. Why collards first as the chapter, the
4: chapter one? I believe collard greens are the most iconic part of soul food, the way that it's cooked and the way that it's always a folklore of of sitting down and having discussions. And it deserves a place in the fabric of America, understanding that this one dish as an icon has has Uh, let loose an entire repertoire of dishes uh, inside my brain and many chefs that come along in that same category
2: I mean now it's it's the new kale, isn't it?
4: I, I believe. Well, you have to ask my sister that because my sister's <laughs> version of collard greens has kale in it okay. and has mustard greens in it. and But we still start with that same traditional recipe that our grandmother made and then our next door neighbor made as as well. So I believe it's just the most iconic part of, of soul food and it deserves its place to stand alone.
2: Mm. Talking about your mom and dad and your grandmother's influence on your cooking, we should take some time to mention your influential professional mentor, Daryl Evans. Would you talk about him?
4: You know, Chef Evans uh, still uh, to this day is probably one of the most unsung heroes of of the Landing dining scene, considering how many people came out of that kitchen that we all started on at the Four Seasons Hotel. And his influence working with Tom Catherall, who's still uh, one of the most fascinating chefs in, in the city, but well, what he did for culture in this in this great city of Atlanta was show that we are a more diverse society in the south, that people give us credit for around around the country. And to see what he did with the Culinary Olympics, also to see what he did at the Four Seasons Hotel, uh, his way of dealing with what international celebrity chefs like Jacques Pepin as he came into the kitchen was really groundbreaking at that time. And it still serves as the basis of, of measuring stick for all the chefs that came out of the kitchen. And so we all have Jacques Pepin walking around our kitchen, we still haven't accomplished anything at all.
2: Oh, I'm not <laughs> sure about that. But ultimately, Todd, how can honoring our own culinary heritage help unite us with those of different heritage?
4: Well. We really find commonplace. I have a great friend uh, here in Atlanta, Guy Wong, you know, who has several restaurants, and his broth for ramen reminds me of my broth for collard greens Ah. and and those similarities I can go there and just drink the broth and know his whole family's history and the same thing he can come to one of my restaurants and drink the broth and understand my whole family's history in that and we find commonplace and 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 don't mean to be preachy here but in the way the world is right now we have to find more commonplace and the only way to do that is to eat together and celebrate each other's culture James Beard Award-nominated
2: chef Todd Richards. His cookbook is Soul, a chef's culinary evolution in 150 recipes. You can also visit his new restaurant, Soul, Food and Culture, at Crog Street Market. After a short break, we'll listen back to an in-studio performance with the artist known as O.K. Cello. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A Corey Johnson, best known as OK Cello, combines live sound looping with classical cello music to bring a modern twist to this century's old instrument. His sophomore album, Resolve, built on his 2015 debut album, Liminal. In 2018, Akori joined me in studio to share some of his music from the album Resolve. He began by performing a song from the album called Springtime in Wakanda. much. Transporting us to that sub-Saharan land of Wakanda in springtime. In springtime.
0: The fantastical imaginary fictitious place, right, of, of Wakanda. Oh, but but only nonetheless. Only to some. Only to some. <laughs> Oh, Corey uh-huh. Johnson.
2: Okay, Cello, that's gorgeous. Now you have quite an array of equipment around you. Will you tell us about how you developed your technique?
0: Well, I think a lot of it is by accident. I was, I guess, moved, inspired by Zoe Keating, who is, I think, the mother of all cello looping. Um, I think she was the first that I ever saw do it, and she does it really well. But I wasn't really trying to become a looper. I I just bought a a looping pedal one day to experiment. It was also at the time when I, I used to be an English teacher, and I left the classroom to go produce a film, And it got off to a great start, and then it started not to do so well. And uh, I was a little sad, and I was leaning on my cello, uh, and playing myself through what seemed like dark spaces. And I had a a looper, and I was kind of just experimenting with that. And on the morning of my 40th birthday, I was feeling really bad. (laughs) Just because I I thought either I had to uh, make a movie about zombies or vampires, which (laughs) I didn't want to do, which felt a lot like failure, Or I had to go back to the classroom, and I loved the classroom, but I, you know, I left in this grand, you know, flurry of, of like, ambition, and I I didn't want to go back and say, well, I couldn't make it happen. So I sat down on my cello, and I started playing. I didn't tune my cello. I didn't really know what I was going to play either, and this bass line... just kind of poured out of me, and I started improvising over top of that bass line, and... All of a sudden, a song was born, and that song changed my life. It gave birth to uh, nine other songs. Those songs became a concert. That concert became a concert series. And all of a sudden, I was a looping cellist. The, The exciting thing about The Looper is that I enjoy playing contemporary bass lines. But it's hard to do that. And do anything else if you're playing traditionally. Yeah, because Uh, you have a bow. You have a bow, and then you you have to pretty much be content holding the bass line. But what was nice about the looper is that it just allowed me to do many things. So I could hold my bass line, and then I could go and create interior parts, and then I could go and create melodies. And all do it in this composed, controlled um, atmosphere. that, That was really inviting to me.
2: So you are your own conductor, music director. Uh, I mean, there are many things going on at once in your brain, in your mind's ear. This is not easy.
0: Yeah, I think it probably is complicated. Uh, It looks probably more complicated at first than it is after you've been doing it for a little while. But I've played in bands and played all of these parts independently, not for the specific songs, right? But sometimes I'm in a band and I play melody or I'll play bass, but now I'm just doing it all together.
2: Well, I wondered about that because what you do on your own is beautiful. Do you still work with other musicians?
0: I do. Not quite as much. Not because I don't want to, but I'm finding that my time is a little finite for me. I've played for many, many, many years with Doria Roberts, with whom I am a huge, huge both fan and friend and really kind of student of. I think my live show is informed by just how many shows I've seen her do. Um, There's a wonderful performer in town named cleveland jones he's got a beautiful beautiful voice and he and john houston and i did a trio show at city winery that you hosted Uh, we were we're an ensemble called new ensemble yes um there's another violinist in town that i've also played with um paul mercer who's also really amazing he's a kind of an improvisational classical musician and i i would be remiss if i didn't mention that i don't play out with him as much but all of this started because of my best friend julian tillery was a guitarist and that was my first cello collaboration and we played suburban rock so (laughs) stone temple pilots and pearl jam and all that kind of stuff like that so a long story tradition for me of collaborating with beautiful really wonderful people not to mention this is this one feels like name dropping but uh the the second person that i started with playing was was india RV. and we played a long time for a while so but not as much anymore Okay,
2: well, so you've you've got other things that you're (laughs) keeping up with. Uh Now, the sound of the cello is so magnificent. For so many people, Mm -hmm. it is the richest, most Mm -hmm. soulful-sounding instrument. And it's right there in your stage name. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think you'd want to branch out to other sounds other instruments
0: you know I, I i never really wanted to play seriously any other instrument i will i will admit like a lot of other musicians i have a little bit of guitar envy it's just <laughs> it's just so portable it's just so popular it's just so easy but i don't think i ever really wanted the the musicality of the guitar i love the cello because i can play chords i can pluck but i can also bow and i have this mm. really beautiful range I think one of the reasons why I haven't been interested in other instruments all that much is that the cello creates so many different sounds that I think I'm satiated in Mm -hmm. some ways, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got a little percussion here. I've definitely got bass. I've got kind of guitar key mid-range stuff that I can do. And I've got solo instruments that allow me to play high and kind of be heard over everything else. So all that's here on the instrument. Um, And the looper has given me an opportunity to do all of that. At the same time, so uh, I'm very content. Tell me about the provenance of your cello. You know, so uh, I bought this cello maybe in 2003 or 2004 from a family, a, a family in Maryland, and I didn't know much about the instrument. But my cello—I'm going to jump ahead, maybe a decade. My cello broke two springs ago, and. It broke right on the block, and it was Ooh. horrible. It was really very expensive uh, repair. I was crying. My family kind imagine. of they consoled me as if someone in my family had died. But in the process of getting that instrument back or this instrument back to life or bringing it back to life, I learned so much about it that it was likely made uh, in Bohemia in the 19th century. Um, So it's 150-plus years old. It was part probably of a generation of instruments that was a rush to meet the demand of stringed instruments in the New World. So it was not made to the same standards as some of the more premium instruments. Um, But nonetheless, it's still a very solid instrument. Dwarveshok
2: could have played you. I know, it's
0: quite possible. The the, the, the really interesting thing, however, is, and this is a complicated... uh, gender story. I'm actually a very big feminist and womanist so this story is interesting to me. Apparently these instruments that were made to meet the demand in the new world were made by women because at the time they thought that they could pay women less uh. and they didn't have to be quite as good technically as the men which was the which is what they were thinking but I can't tell you how excited I am to have what is probably one of very few instruments that were put together by women.
2: Uh-huh. In a
0: tradition that is, for the most part, dominated by men, it's likely that I have an instrument that was put together by women, and that's an important part of the songwriting that I do. It's an important part of the experience uh, that I'm trying to draw upon when I'm writing songs.
2: Corey, you okay, cello.
0: Okay, cello, oh, Corey,
2: okay, I responded to both. And I knew you initially as a Corey, <laughs> so forgive me for reverting. It's to all that. right. You engage in something with your live audiences, a game called Storytime, mm-hmm. in which you ask the audience, the concertgoers, to close their eyes while you play. How does that work, and would you take us on the story Time? Oh,
0: I love that. Wow, I didn't expect that, but this is fun. <laughs> All right, so I, w- I had an opportunity to do a Hambage residency two Novembers ago. I came up with this progression: one, two, yeah, right. This waltz, waltz. and I thought it was a very narrative progression. I wasn't sure what story it was telling, but I knew it was telling a story. And I spent a lot of time in the residency trying to figure out what story was being told, and I couldn't figure it out. So I decided what I would do is I would play this progression for my audience, and allow them to come up with their own story. So I play the progression. I invite them to close their eyes to imagine either a protagonist, an era, or a color. And then I improvise over the progression. And then at the end of the song, I ask them to share with me, or with the audience really, what story they saw unfold before their eyes, using my melody as their plot. And it's amazing the stories that we get. I mean, it's just really, it's probably one of my favorite Things to do in a show. Um, I'm a former English teacher, as I mentioned, and I I enjoy creating student and or audience-centered <laughs> experiences. You know what I mean? So yeah. things where you're not just coming and being talked to or played to, opportunities for the audience to really contribute, and that's my favorite part. Would mm-hmm. you, you do you want me to give you a little bit of that right now? I loved what you just played. Okay, that you gotcha.
2: But yes, it's, of course uh, we can't hear from all of the listeners oh, at yeah, this yeah, moment, yeah. but would you play a little more? Sure, here we go. Tell you what story
0: I came to. Hear your story. I get a chance to hear Lois writes this is a story to oh, story time. This is a big moment for
2: me. Well, it's a big moment for me. I mean, engaging in this beautiful exercise. The color I saw was periwinkle, which oh, wow. has always been my favorite. Really? Okay. And it had such a beautifully melancholy lilt mm. that it, it, i felt uh, eastern europe mm. and uh, maybe a child a girl who had never seen ballet mm. but came upon a dancer and and saw a waltz for the first time and then as you continued to play um I heard influences from farther east, you know, mm. I, I don't know, maybe Azerbaijan or mm. somewhere, you know, sort of that Central Asian uh-huh. flavor. It was breathtaking. Wow.
1: Yay. Oh.
0: I'm excited. I'm glad that this is being recorded. so I can... <laughs> I've got Lois writes, this story to story time. That's great. Well,
2: I, to have you here, such a treat. Now- yes. In just the couple minutes we have left, I wanted to ask you, resolve your album. Mm -hmm. What kind of audience response have you had? I'm
0: getting a very strong audience response. Two or three things that I enjoy the most about um, feedback from my album are, one, I find that parents very frequently play the album for their children. Oh, So that's a very special moment for me. And they describe for me very frequently what their children's responses are to listening to particular songs, so that's great. I also really enjoy that artists will put my music on and create. So I've had visual artists, I've had sculptors, um, I've had writers put on resolve and just kind of let it play. And they use that as inspiration for creating their own art. I like that a lot. My favorite moment, however, and I'm probably not going to get a chance to play it here, but I had a big CD release, and I've got a, a reggae song <gasps> called uh, "You Make Me Smile." It's really it was a it was a challenge. My wife challenged me to write a happy song because <laughs> she thinks the cello was so sad and melancholy. And I' was like, well, I got you. I'm going to get this beautifully happy reggae song. Anyway, so I played it on my CD release, and this was the first time that people got up and they danced.
2: Atlanta musician Corey Johnson, known as OK Cello. His most recent album is Resolve. OK Cello performs live at the Aziza and Falafel Nation Patio Grand Opening on September 30th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an Encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Beethoven and Bluegrass with the Emory Chamber Music Society. We'll hear from Will Ransom and fiddler Marco Connor. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.